So as we begin this morning, I want, I want you to, to think of a moment, an experience of wonder. No, actually do. Actually, take a moment. Think of a moment where you experienced wonder. Can you see it in your mind's eye? Perhaps the smells, the sounds, the, the colors, the sight, the feel. For those of you who were actually able to do it, do you, did you notice what happened to your breathing as you did? As you recalled that moment of wonder? Researchers have observed that physiologically, awe slows our heart rate. It, you might be happy to know, it relieves digestion. It deepens breathing. It also seems, they say, to quiet that negative self-talk that is often playing in our minds. Right? It's at once both the absence of self-preoccupation and yet it, it leads us to feel more intimately connected to and a part of something far beyond ourselves. And I know sometimes when we think of wonder, when I ask you to come up with that moment, our minds go to vacations, or for those of us in the Midwest, maybe mountains or oceans, right? We think of perhaps privileged opportunities. And yet wonder, these same researchers insist, is accessible to each of us right where we are. As I sat with this week's Advent story, and again, our overarching theme in this season, how does a weary world rejoice? I found myself continually drawn to the question posed as uh, the sermon title this morning. In the midst of acknowledging our weariness, of acknowledging our longing for hope, for peace, for joy and love, as we name the griefs and the violence, as we do all of this, can I, can you, can we, can we allow ourselves to still be amazed? Are wonder and awe possible even here? And how, if we make this an Advent practice, how might allowing ourselves to be amazed, to opening ourselves to everyday wonders amidst our longing and weariness, how might that change us? How might, how might they prepare the way within us and within our wider world to receive, to embody once again, to incarnate the love of God? As I return to the unfolding story of Elizabeth and Mary and Zechariah in this morning's Gospel of Luke, I wondered, how might wonder and awe have been part of that spiritual transformation taking place within each of them? For the duration of Elizabeth's pregnancy, her husband, Zechariah, could not speak. That alone might be good news, I don't know. We don't know much about their relationship dynamics before this season, but we do know that when their sweet, beautiful, miracle baby has been born and the time comes for that ritual of, of naming, and the extended family, the neighbors, they all come just like this morning, well, that they expect Elizabeth and Zechariah to adhere to certain patriarchal, religious, and cultural traditions. Surely this baby's going to be a junior. 
they insist. Surely his name will carry on the family tradition. They don't seem to know about Zechariah's encounter with that angel, Gabriel, but Elizabeth knows. Elizabeth knows what God has spoken to Zechariah, the promise. And so with great courage, once again, Elizabeth responds to all of those gathered with a firm, nope. And this isn't a polite Midwestern no, the, oh, you know, maybe, yeah, no. The Greek phrasing here is actually very strong and insistent. And in other instances in scripture where it's translated, it's often phrased as, by no means, right? Elizabeth in this moment is saying, no, no, and again, no, his name is John. The firmness of her response might sound strange to some of us, but clearly she knew that it had to be, that breaking tradition would be met with resistance, that she was likely to be dismissed. Right? You can imagine everyone staring at this moment, surprised, bewildered. It's a bit out of line for a woman in her world. And what at first seems to be a beautiful gathering of love and community and joy and blessing of this incredible new life that God had given these folks. Well, it seems to carry a larger story. And if you'll remember just back to last week, how despite, well, these folks' presence at the party, these were the same people Luke had spoken of Uh, put in Elizabeth's mouth, these were the same people that had shamed and shunned her, that had made her feel disgraced, lonely, inadequate, guilty about being infertile, as though it was her fault. In a scene that remains profoundly and predictably and regrettably relatable, 2,000 years later, the crowd then turns to the man in the room, her husband, Zechariah, and and asks for his response. Surely, they thought, Zechariah will put Elizabeth in her place and set things straight. Surely this isn't the the plan. You can feel, again, the tension in the scene, the emotions simmering for each of the different characters. Well-meaning family and neighbors, so quick with the certainty of what they think they know, however wrong they might be, but they don't even think twice about correcting Elizabeth with it. So how would Zechariah respond in that moment? He's a junior, right, they ask. As a still speechless Zechariah writes out, his name is John, all of them, those gathered, Scripture says, were amazed, were astonished, were filled with awe. At what? Exactly, we might wonder, at Zechariah's submission to Elizabeth? At his breaking with tradition in order to do a new thing? In reference to this entire event, their unlikely pregnancy? At the way that God had transformed their long-standing personal and social shame? Their deep grief? How God made a way when there seemed to be no way? Had offered them hope and joy? just when all hope and joy seem to be vanquished? 
had made them believe that maybe it wasn't, maybe it wasn't just about them. Maybe, like Psalm 126 cries out, maybe the whole world might be in a time of great transition of new birth, of joy. Maybe this has much bigger implications than just themselves. Maybe, maybe it's all of this or beyond what can even be named or spoken. Whatever it was, again, the crowd's certainty, as wrong as it was, is replaced by awe. And I say that awe has replaced certainty because awe is the recognition of something beyond your full comprehension. It is a stance of humility. It is to recognize that you are in the presence of something far beyond you. The entire crowd, it seems, allows itself to be changed by awe. Awe and certainty cannot coexist. And we also know this, that Zechariah, having the courage to affirm Elizabeth's authority in this moment, to follow her lead, well, it was the right and faithful thing to do because immediately after he does, Zechariah can speak again. Did you catch that? Uh, this happens not once John is born. You might think that that would be the end of this whole uh, saga for, for Zechariah. It happens not when John is born, but after a moment of publicly affirming Elizabeth, trusting this call that God had placed on their lives, right when the cultural and religious forces of the world tried to pull him back into business as usual, into the status quo, no, God was doing a new thing. Follow Elizabeth's daring lead. But in that moment, it's, it's as though Zechariah isn't merely given his old voice back, but that his voice has itself been transformed. That is, it is different just as he is different. For how different is his response here in this moment his ability to trust through difficulty. It's the exact opposite of where he begins this story, right? And so to return to where I started earlier, this week I've been wondering, how, how did Zechariah and Elizabeth go from where they were, where they started, ashamed, weary, overwhelmed with grief, just trying to get through these last days of their lives? Again, they were, they were old, Scripture says. How did they get from there to here, to a place of bold courage, of daring resolve, from distrusting that such a thing could even be possible to, be, to, to believing, having the audacity to believe that they, these marginalized folks on the very edge of empire, Nobody's in the eyes of the world that they, of all people, were a part of God's larger story of healing and repairing the world. What role might wonder and awe have played in that journey? Again, we don't know the specifics of their relationship dynamics before all of this, but we do know that in their world, men ruled the home and society even if with, with compassion. They were still in charge. And now, after nine months of silence in the face of public pressure to do the opposite, we see Zechariah boldly and firmly following the lead of his wife. 
nine months of silence, most of a year. I know that we, we like those instant miracles, those moments of change where we get the answers, things change, but I think this feels a little bit more realistic to me. Nine months. Things take the time that they take, which is usually longer than we want them to take. And I wonder if at first, Zechariah fumed with anger about all of this. Right? How is he supposed to do his job without a voice? How could he be a man in his house and in this world without a voice? It was a loss of power, a humiliating loss of power, perhaps, of control. And of course, he didn't know when it was going to end. Was it forever? And how was he supposed to be a father now? Right? This was a dream from his past. He's already weary in his bones. How is he supposed to be a dad now? We can imagine all of this, I think, quite naturally for pretty much anybody in his position. And at some point, these difficult, uncontrollable experiences in life, they either, they either break us apart, they harden us, they make us resentful, they cut us off from parts of our humanity that are difficult to bear. They either break us apart or they break us open. They expand our hearts and minds. They make us capable of greater compassion and understanding. But either way, we know that whatever they do to us will inevitably be what we extend to others. The question for Zechariah, and, and I'd have to imagine for Elizabeth as, we, as, as well this week, as well as for us, is can we allow ourselves, and I, I mean this language intentionally, can we allow ourselves somehow through the seemingly impossible circumstances in life to remain open to wonder that leads to awe? So that like the great artist might gracefully remake us as a mosaic. As I mentioned earlier, researchers say that awe, it quiets that fear and negative self-talk. It's at once the absence of self-preoccupation and yet leads us to feel more intimately connected to something far beyond ourselves. Studies show that prayer, meditation, deep reflection practices like these enable a greater capacity for awe. Because awe is itself openness to the unexpected rather than seeking to control every variable and eliminate the uncertainty. And so I wondered this week how Zechariah's frustrating new reality began to shift once he turned to wonder. Once he began to pay attention to the things that he had previously overlooked in the everydayness of life, that he had taken for granted that he had ignored? What did he and what did Mary and Elizabeth notice during those three months that Mary and Elizabeth spent together when only, when only the women could speak and share stories and reflect on the meaning of it all and only he could listen? As they fumed, 
as they laughed, as they cried, as they cooked, as they ate, as they danced. And as Zechariah turned to wonder with each day in the midst of all of this, how as a result was his heart and mind expanded and his life transformed quite literally, as the research tells us, from the inside out. How did Elizabeth's pregnancy and community she formed with the young Mary become a season of spiritual awakening for all of them? Become the gestation and labor of their own rebirth? More than sunsets and, and mountaintops, the great 20th century Jewish rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel wrote, Awe is an intuition for the dignity of all things. And Cole Arthur Riley adds, awe is not a lens through which we look to see the world here or there in those moments of sunsets and sushi and mountaintops, but it's our sole path to seeing. Any other lens other than awe and wonder is not a lens but a veil. It clouds. And I've come to believe, she writes, that our beholding in this way through wonder is no small form of salvation. For to lose our capacity for wonder and therefore to be in awe is to lose our capacity to honor the dignity of the world around us. As with Zechariah and Elizabeth and Mary, to practice wonder and awe is not to escape the real world, the harsh realities around us, but to transform our vision in the midst of it all. And that's just it. Awe is both a doing, it's a practice, something we commit ourselves to, and it's simply a way of being in the world. It's a spiritual muscle that we have to keep exercising to keep it from atrophying. And I wonder, was it Zechariah's spiritual life that rather than separating him from the world around him, led him deeper into it? led him into deeper moments of wonder and awe, especially during those nine months. To be able to marvel at the face of our neighbor, of the person next to us, with the same awe that we have for the mountaintop, Riley writes, this manner of vision is what will keep us from destroying each other. Wonder, she goes on, is a force of liberation. It makes sense of what our souls inherently know we were meant for. If you really want to get free, find God on the subway. Find God in the soap bubble. Find God in the waters, in the bathtub. Anywhere you hear leaders justifying grotesque violence as the path to peace, to security, to a future with hope, refusing to explicitly call for an end to violence, you hear, you witness people who have lost their capacity for wonder, who have lost their capacity to honor the dignity of all things, including themselves. Friends, when we are overwhelmed with grief, with our own rage, with exhaustion, with despair, 
may you find yourself somehow turning to the simple wonders all around you, returning to yourselves and returning to God. May wonder stitch us back together one slow breath at a time so that somehow over the ensuing months, perhaps without even noticing it, like Zechariah and Elizabeth, you might just find yourself being made new and with us, all the world. May it be so. Amen.